BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the eternal city, Roma, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, wishing you uh, buongiorno, buonasera, salve o ciao, depending on what time you are listening, depending, of course, on how intimate we are, and I consider us very intimate, which is why I ended with Ciao, bella bello, just returned from Venice, the floating graveyard, and uh, wow, what a what a city that is! Like I, I honestly didn't really have much much interest in going to Venice. It was Martha's uh, idea. I was content to stay in our little flat here in Rome, but she wanted to see it, and, and uh, I'm glad we went. It was it was just lovely chilly. Don't get me wrong, it was chilly out there on the water. The wind's whipping around. You know, it's not quite spring here in Italia, and so uh, things were a little bit chilly, but uh, with the cold brought a lack of turistas. I don't know if that's the word at all. Um, so it was, it was it was relatively quiet. We wandered a fair amount. We went to uh, Murano, went to the Glass Museum there. We went to the Fortuni house uh, where Mariano Fortuni worked. And he invented his uh, famous light and his famous uh, lamp and his famous dress and all his famous shit that he did. I, 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 look, what do I know about Fortuni? Nothing, but my wife's an interior designer, so, you know. She wanted to see that shit. And then we went to the Peggy Guggenheim Museum uh, and looked at all kinds of paintings and stuff. You know, you know about paintings and stuff, right? Well, they're there, you know, uh, modern, modern collection uh, from Peggy Guggenheim. We had ourselves a fine time. Uh, I'll tell you what was disappointing in Venice were the restaurants. I don't think we had a good meal while we were there. I'm not saying we had a bad meal. I don't think anything we ate was particularly great. Um, Martha made friends while she was there. Like I, like I woke up, you know, she's like, we woke up, I woke up and she's like, I'm going to go get some coffee. Do you want, do you want to come? I'm like, no, I want to lay in bed for as long as humanly possible. And then she came back like half an hour later and she's like, oh, I met some people. We're having dinner with them tonight. I'm like, fuck, why would you do that to me? Why would, why would you make me have dinner with people? Uh, but they turned out to be a lovely couple, Amy and Ravi from Chicago. We went to a, a restaurant recommended to them by a retired gondolier. If you wonder what happens to gondoliers when they retire, they become tour guides and they direct you to very mediocre, overpriced restaurants. So we had a fine meal and a fine conversation with those people. And now... 
I am back in Roma, heading off to Dublin, Ireland in the morning for the Irish Poker Open, which I will be attending as a spectator. My friend Joe Stapleton, he of poker commentary fame, invited me to come hang out with him. So I'm going to do that, play some cards, and uh, get my Dublin on. But in the meantime, you know, we've got a book to finish. I mean, it's so, we're so tantalizingly close to the end here. It's, uh, every time I pick it up, I look at it and I go, oh my God, I've just got a few pages left. But, but those few pages actually, you know, could take a few episodes because I read so, so slowly because my commentary is so very insightful and uh, one needs to have time to expound on all the great themes, motifs, etc., none of which I have found in this book. We just finished chapter 32 with Mrs. Dean recounting the story of uh, Earnshaw and Kathy Jr.'s love. And, uh, you know, she concluded by saying, uh, I shall envy no one on their wedding day. There won't be a happier woman than myself in England. And of course, she feels a kind of matrimonial pride in her bosom for the blossoming romance between her two, well, her one charge and another that she has seen grow up in misery, but was helpless to intervene. So why don't we pick it up on a new chapter? You know I love that. Chapter 33 of Wuthering Heights. Okay, so wait, who is speaking now? On the morrow of that Monday. Uh, wait, so oh, I'm already confused. Okay, so she ends the last chapter by saying, You see, Mr. Lockwood, it was easy enough to win Mrs. Heathcliff's heart, but now I'm glad you did not try. The crown of all my wishes will be the union of those two. I shall envy no one on their wedding day. There won't be a happier woman than myself in England, chapter 33. On the morrow of that Monday, Earnshaw being still unable to follow his ordinary employments and therefore remaining about the house, I speedily found it would be impracticable to retain my charge beside me as heretofore. So it's obviously Mrs. Dean because Lockwood doesn't have a charge. Uh, I mean, what is he an eye on? (laughs) That's a good one, Michael. She got downstairs before me and out into the garden where she had seen her cousin performing some easy work. And when I went to bid them come to breakfast, I saw she had persuaded him to clear a large space of ground from currant and gooseberry bushes, and they were busy planning together an importation of plants from the grange. I was terrified at the devastation which had been accomplished in a brief half hour. The black currant trees were the apple of Joseph's eye, and she had just fixed her choice of a flower bed in the midst of them. And I I saw there was an exclamation point at the end of that sentence, so I I threw in a little emphasis there, you know, because of my great acting. There, that will be all shown to the master, I exclaimed, the minute it is discovered. And what excuse have you to offer for taking such liberties with the garden? We shall have a fine explosion on the head of it. See if we don't. 
Mr. Hareton, I wonder you should have no more wit than go and make that mess at her bidding. I'd forgotten they were Joseph's, answered Earnshaw, rather puzzled. But I'll tell him I did it. We always ate our meals with Mr. Heathcliff. I held the mistress's post in making tea and carving, so I was indispensable at table. Catherine usually sat by me, but today she stole nearer to Hareton, and I presently saw she would have no more discretion in her friendship than she had in her hostility. So she's just, you know, she's just wearing it on her sleeve, that kid. She's just saying, I hated him, now I love him, so I'm going to, I used to sit far, now I'm going to sit close, you know? Just like any schoolgirl would. And she really isn't much older than a schoolgirl herself. Now, mind you don't talk with and notice your cousin too much, were my whispered instructions as we entered the room. It will certainly annoy Mr. Heathcliff, and he'll be mad at you both. I'm not going to, she answered. The minute after, she had sidled to him and was sticking primroses in his plate of porridge. You can't do that, Kathy. Uh, you know, th- th- this is one thing that I have learned as a parent. If the kids stick primroses in the porridge, it's going to cause problems for everybody. There's a reason you keep your primroses separate from your porridge. The primroses go over here, the porridge goes over there. When you start mixing them, the next thing you know, you've got a combustion that will not quit. Explosions everywhere. And it's not just that primroses and porridge don't go together. It's the symbolism of the whole thing. Primroses and porridge. That's my favorite uh, album by Bell and Sebastian. He dared not speak to her there. He dared hardly look. And yet she went on teasing till he was twice on the point of being provoked to laugh. And I frowned, and then she glanced towards the master, whose mind was occupied on other subjects than his company, as his countenance evinced. And she grew serious for an instant, scrutinizing him with deep gravity. Afterwards she turned, and recommenced her nonsense. At last, Hareton uttered a smothered laugh. Mr. Heathcliff started, His eye rapidly surveyed our faces. Catherine met it with her accustomed look of nervousness, and yet defiance, which he abhorred. "'It is well you are out of my reach,' he exclaimed. "'What fiend possesses you to stare back at me continually with those infernal eyes? Down with them! Don't remind me of your existence again. I I thought I'd cured you of laughing.' "'It was me,' muttered Hareton. "'What do you say?' demanded the master. Hareton looked at his plate and did not repeat the confession. Mr. Heathcliff looked at him a bit and then silently resumed his breakfast and his interrupted musing. We had nearly finished and the two young people prudently shifted wider asunder, so I anticipated no further disturbance during that sitting. When Joseph appeared at the door, revealing by his quivering lip and furious eyes that the outrage committed on his precious shrubs was detected. Well, see, I, I feel I feel a kind of knot in my stomach right now. Not because I am concerned about the imminent cataclysm that is surely to occur at that breakfast table, but because Joseph is going to have some kind of speech and I'm going to have to try to read it. And that's always very stressful for me. 
He must have seen Kathy and her cousin about the spot before he examined it, for while his jaws worked like those of a cow chewing its cud, and rendered his speech difficult to uh, here we go difficult to understand, he began, "I won't have me wage, and I won't me go. I had aim to de where I'd serve for sixty year, and I thought I'd lug my books up into the garret and all my bits of stuff, and they suit half the kitchen to their cell for to sake of quietness. It were hard to gee up my own hearthstone, but I thought I could do that, but no. Shoes tan my garden for me, un by the heart. Maester, I cannot stand it. You ma bun to the yoke, and you will. I no use to an old man doesn't soon get used to new barthens. I'd rather earn my bite and my sup with a hammer in the road. So, you know, the gist of it, I assume, is just that I was trying to give them their space. I went to the garret with my book, and I, you know, I was, I was trying to be a good guy, and then I turn around, and holy hell, look what they did to my bushes, and I'd, I can't work here anymore. I'd rather be a, I'd rather have a hammer, and I don't know. And here's, here it is. Here it is in English. I must have my wage, and I must go. So he's quitting. I had meant to die where I'd served for sixty years, and I thought I'd lug my books up into the garret and all my bits of stuff, and they should have the kitchen to themselves for the sake of quiet. It was hard to give up my own hearthstone, but I thought I could do that. But no, she's taken my garden from me and my place by the hearth. Master, I cannot stand it. You may bend to the yoke if you want to, I'm not used to it, and an old man doesn't soon get used to new conditions. I'd rather earn my keep with a hammer on the road. So he's just laying down the gauntlet right there. He's basically saying it's her or me, kid. Her or me. And, you know, you know, Mr. Heathcliff, he's not going to stand for this. My guess is the belt is going to come out of his pants and he's going to snap it a couple times and bend that gal over his knee and whoop her till she's black and blue. However... What is he not anticipating? I will answer it in the form of a prediction. Young Hareton Earnshaw, defying his uncle-in-law and not allowing any harm to befall her. Remember, Hareton is young and in his prime. He's also very big. Heathcliff is old-ish and withered, and though he may be ferocious in temperament, I suspect his physicality will be no match for Hertons, we're going to have a great Santini moment when the youngin finally rises up and slays the olden. You know, it's Oedipal, baby. It's all Oedipal. Here we go. Now, you now, idiot, interrupted Heathcliff. Cut it short. What's your grievance? I'll interfere in no quarrels between you and Nellie. She may thrust you into the coal hole for anything I care. <laughs> Uh, that's one place you don't want to get thrust, believe me. The coal hole. If you're going to go into the coal hole, go in gently and use plenty of lubricant. It's no Nelly, answered Joseph. Or sudden shift for Nelly. Nasty, ill note as she is. Thank God. She cannot stay to sole nubbed. She were never so handsome, but wet her body mud look at her about winking. 
that's your flesh, graceless queen, which witched our lad with her body on her forehead ways, till nay, it fair brusts my heart. He's forgotten all he done for him, and made on him, and going and riving up a whole route to grandest currant trees, aye, to garden. I mean, we're getting the gist of it, but I, you know, I have to give you the exact translation. It's not Nelly. I wouldn't move because of Nelly. Nasty, evil, nothing that she is. Thank God she can't steal anybody's soul. She was never so handsome that a man mightn't look at her without winking. God, it's yon terrible, graceless, and here's a word I wasn't anticipating, slut who has bewitched our lad with her bold eyes and her forward ways till, no, it nearly breaks my heart. He's forgotten all I did for him and made of him and has gone and torn up a whole row of the grandest current trees in the garden. It is, well, I should take a break for a second, but I, I will say it is a little bit hard not to feel sorry for Joseph in this moment. Poor Joseph, who has been following his own North Star all these many years, and though you and I may perceive his northern light as leading him straight to the devil, uh, he thinks he is the good guy, and he thinks he has been leading Herton on the path of righteousness, and for Herton to turn around and chop down the currant trees. My goodness, it is it is no wonder he feels betrayed. So we'll we'll uh, take a brief interruption back in uh, in a minuto, minute, minuetti, I don't know. Minuetto, I have no idea. Here on obscure. Back on Obscure, waiting to hear Heathcliff's reaction to the decimation of the finest currant trees in the garden to make way for that slut's flower bed. My goodness, there could be some fireworks. Let's see. So he's just gotten done complaining, and here he lamented outright, unmanned by a sense of his bitter injuries, and Earnshaw's ingratitude and dangerous condition. Is the fool drunk? asked Mr. Heathcliff. Hareton, is it you he's finding fault with? I've pulled up two or three bushes, replied the young man, but I'm going to set him again. And why have you pulled them up? said the master. Catherine wisely put in her tongue. We wanted to plant some flowers there, she cried. I'm the only person to blame, for I wished him to do it. And who the devil gave you leave to touch a stick about the place? Demanded her father-in-law, much surprised. And who ordered you to obey her? He added, turning to Hareton. The latter was speechless. His cousin replied, You shouldn't grudge a few yards of earth for me to ornament when you have taken all my land. 
"'Your land, insolent slut, you never had any,' said Heathcliff. "'And my money,' she continued, returning his angry glare, "'and meantime, biting a piece of crust, the remnant of her breakfast. "'Silence!' he exclaimed. "'Get done and be gone!' "'And Hareton's hand, and Hareton's land, and his money,' pursued the reckless thing. "'Hareton and I are friends now, and I shall tell him all about you.' The master seemed confounded a moment. He grew pale, and rose up, eyeing her all the while, with an expression of mortal hate. See what this is? The belt's coming off. I'm telling you, the belt's coming off. The buttocks are getting beaten to bruise. If you strike me, Hareton will strike you, she said, so you may as well sit down. If Hareton does not turn you out of the room, I'll strike him to hell, thundered Heathcliff. Damnable witch! Dare you pretend to rouse him against me? Off with her. Do you hear? Fling her into the kitchen. I'll kill her, Ellen Dean, if you let her come into my sight again. Hareton tried under his breath to persuade her to go. Drag her away, he cried savagely. Wait, I'm a little bit... Okay, okay so wait, this is Heathcliff talking now. Okay, I'm a little, uh, I guess, still rattled from the long bullet train, you know, back from Venice. It's catching up with me. You get to you get you go from Rome to Venice on the bullet train in about four hours' time. It's a terrific train. I mean, we were sitting in steerage, you know, with the hoi polloi, the commoners, and uh, even so, it was very comfortable. The only problem, of course, is uh, lack of internet. You know, they always say, "Oh, connect to our internet on the train," and then nothing works. Whether you, whether it's here on a bullet train or Back in the States on Amtrak. Yeah, internet never works. And yet somehow I fly JetBlue or I fly Delta. They figured it out, you know, up in the skies. They can do it, but they can't seem to figure it out on trains. So, and I, I couldn't find my book before we left, so I didn't have a book. What a nightmare. Drag her away, he cried savagely. Are you staying to talk? And he approached to execute his own command. He'll not obey you, you wicked man, any more said Catherine, and he'll soon detest you as much as I do. Wished, wished, muttered the young man reproachfully. I will not hear you speak so to him, have done. But you won't let me strike, you won't let him strike me, she cried. Come then, he whispered earnestly. It was too late. Heathcliff had caught hold of her. I'm telling you, there's going to be some fisticuffs. Right, it's all leading up to this. To, to, to some downright beatings and bruisings and whippings and whoopings. Now you go, he said to Earnshaw, a cursed witch. This time she has provoked me when I could not bear it, and I'll make her repent for it, repent it forever. He had his hand in his hair, heard an attempt to release the locks, entreating him not to hurt her that once. His black eyes flashed. He seemed ready to tear Catherine in pieces, and I was just worked up to risk coming to the rescue. When of, when of a sudden, his fingers relaxed, he shifted his grasp from her head to her arm and gazed intently in her face. Then he drew his hand over his eyes, stood a moment to collect himself apparently, and turning anew to Catherine, said with assumed calmness, you must learn to avoid putting me in a passion, 
or I sure shall really murder you some time. Go with Mrs. Dean, and keep with her, and confine your insolence to her ears. As to Herr Nurnshaw, if I see him listen to you, I'll send him seeking his bread where he can get it. Your love will make him an outcast and a beggar. Nelly, take her, and leave me, all of you, leave me. Okay, so there were no fisticuffs, and I will admit to much disappointment. But here's the question, why? Why did he retreat in this moment? Did he suspect correctly that Hareton would indeed have put a stop to his malice? Uh, did he, did he uh, intuitively understand that he himself was at risk if he should harm a hair on her head. The other thing we have to ask ourselves is what was he so, um, what was he brooding about so intently at the breakfast table? Did Kenneth perhaps deliver some devastating health news? I don't know. I don't know at all. But uh, I guess we'll have to keep reading to find out. You know, because every page is just another page closer. Oh my goodness, how many more pages do we have? Just a few. Just a few. Duh, you must learn to put me in a passion. Leave me. I led my young lady out. She was too glad of her escape to resist. The other followed, and Mr. Heathcliff had the room to himself till dinner. I had counseled Catherine to get hers upstairs, but as soon as he perceived her vacant seat, he sent me to call her. He spoke to none of us, eat very little, and went out directly afterwards, intimating that he should not return before evening. The two new friends established themselves in the house during his absence, where I heard Hareton sternly check his cousin on her offering a revelation of her father-in-law's conduct to his father. He said he wouldn't suffer a word to be uttered to him in his disparagement. If he were the devil it didn't signify, he would stand by him, and he'd rather she would abuse himself, as she used to, than begin on Mr. Heathcliff. We forget, of course, that Heathcliff has uh, bamboozled this lad from birth. You know, it was it was Heathcliff who who uh, raised him. I mean, he put him in Joseph's care, essentially, but Heathcliff has been masterfully sculpting Hareton Earnshaw from, he's sort of done a reverse sculpture, right? I mean, Hareton could have been a, a Rodan or something, but he is uh, essentially sculpting him into a, into a lump of rock. And he was grateful for it because he's been bamboozled. And now here comes Kathy Jr. chipping away to reveal his true form. And while he welcomes the change, he also resents the truth being presented to him. And I imagine that would be very difficult. Heathcliff has presented himself as hero to Hareton, rescuer, savior, father figure of sorts and friend when really he has been abuser, monster, and uh, overseer, so to speak. 
So this may take some time for him to be disabused of his uh, imaginings of who Heathcliff really is. Catherine was waxing cross at this, but he found means to make her hold her tongue by asking how she would like him to speak ill of her father. And then she comprehended that Earnshaw took the master's reputation home to himself and was attached by ties stronger than reason could break, chains forged by habit, which it would be cruel to attempt to loosen. Exactly. She showed a good heart thenceforth, in avoiding both complaints and expressions of antipathy concerning Heathcliff, and confessed to me her sorrow, that she had endeavored to raise a bad spirit between him and Hareton. Indeed, I don't believe she's ever breathed a syllable in the latter's hearing against her oppressor since. Interesting. Well, you know, that, that speaks well of her, I have to say, because she knows the truth and cares enough about Hareton to keep him from it. That is true maturation, I think. I would rather be burdened with uh, the poison in my own veins than infect another with it. When this slight disagreement was over, they were thick again and as busy as possible in their several occupations of pupil and teacher. I came in to sit with them after I'd done my work, and I felt so soothed and comforted to watch them that I did not notice how time got on. You know, they both appeared in a measure my children. I had long been proud of one, and now I was sure the other would be a source of equal satisfaction. His honest, warm, and intelligent nature shook off rapidly the clouds of ignorance and degradation in which it had been bred, and Catherine's sincere commendations acted as a spur to his industry. His brightening mind brightened his features and added spirit and nobility to their aspect. I could hardly fancy it the same individual I had beheld on the day I discovered my little lady at Wuthering Heights after her expedition to the crags. Well, we're at our normal stopping time, but, um, you know, I'm just, we got another page and a half, couple of pages before the end of the chapter, and I figure I might as well keep going, you know? Why not? We're just, we're nearing the end of the book, and let's just keep going, baby. Why don't we? You know, let's just have a little bonus time together, you and me. We deserve it, don't we? After all we've been through together, we deserve a late night, the two of us, cuddled up with the Bronte between us, reading long into the night. God, I love it when we read together. While I admired, and they labored, dusk drew on, and with it returned the master. He came upon us quite unexpectedly, entering by the front way, and had a full view of the whole three, ere we could raise our heads to glance at him. Well, I reflected, there was never a pleasanter or more harmless sight, and it will be a burning shame to scold them. The red firelight glowed on their two bonny heads and revealed their faces, animated with the eager interest of children. 
for though he was twenty-three and she eighteen, each had so much of novelty to feel and learn, that neither experienced nor evinced the sentiments of sober, disenchanted maturity. They lifted their eyes together to encounter Mr. Heathcliff. Perhaps you have never remarked that their eyes are precisely similar, and they are those of Catherine Earnshaw. The present Catherine has no other likeness to her except a breadth of forehead and a certain arch of the nostril that makes her appear rather haughty, whether she will or not. With Hareton, the resemblance is carried farther. It is singular at all times than it was particularly striking, because his senses were alert and his mental faculties wakened to unwanted, unwanted activity, not unwanted, unwanted, W-O-N-T-E-D. Well, how do we think Mr. Heathcliff is going to react upon finding the two of them, their foreheads bent together, illuminated by the fire, delighting in some bit of bookery? I don't know if bookery is a word, but it, it really ought to be. I suppose this resemblance disarmed Mr. Heathcliff. He walked to the hearth in evident agitation, but it quickly subsided as he looked at the young man, or, I should say, altered its character, for it was there yet. He took the book from his hand and glanced at the open page, then returned it without any observation, merely signing Catherine away. Her companion lingered very little behind her, and I was about to depart also, but he bid me sit still. It is a poor conclusion, is it not? He observed, having brooded a while on the scene he had just witnessed. An absurd termination to my violent exertions. I get levers and mattocks to demolish the two houses and train myself to be capable of working like Hercules. And when everything is ready and in my power, I find the will to lift a slate off either roof has vanished. My old enemies have not beaten me, nor would be the precise time to revenge myself on their representatives. I could do it, and none could hinder me. But where is the use? I don't care for striking. I can't take the trouble to raise my hand. That sounds as if I'd been laboring the whole time, only to exhibit a fine trait of magnanimity. Magnanimity! One of those hard English words. You walk around Rome all the time. You see all these long words and you have to kind of spell them out in syllables. That's the way it is with magnanimity. It is far from being the case. I have lost the faculty of enjoying their destruction and I am too idle to destroy for nothing. Nelly, there is a strange change approaching. I'm in its shadow at present. I take so little interest in my daily life that I hardly remember to eat and drink. Those two who have left the room are the only objects which retained a distinct material appearance to me, and that appearance causes me pain amounting to agony. About her I won't speak, and I don't desire to think, but I earnestly wish she were invisible. Her presence invokes only maddening sensation." He moves me differently, and yet if I could do it without seeming insane, I'd never see him again. 
You'll perhaps think me rather inclined to become so, he added, making an effort to smile. If I tried to describe the thousand forms of past associations and ideas he awakens or embodies. But you'll not talk of what I tell you, and my mind is so eternally secluded in itself, it is tempting at last to turn it out to another. Five minutes ago, Hareton seemed a personification of my youth, not a human being. I felt to him in such a variety of ways that it would have been impossible to have accosted him rationally. In the first place, his startling likeness to Catherine connected him fearfully with her. That, however, which you may suppose the most potent to arrest my imagination is actually the least, for what it is not connected with her but for what is not connected with her to me, and what does not recall her. I cannot look down to this floor, but her features are shaped on the flags, in every cloud, in every tree, filling the air at night, and caught by glimpses in every object. By day I am surrounded with her image, the most ordinary faces of men and women. My own features mock me with a resemblance. The entire world is a dreadful collection of memoranda that she did exist and that I have lost her. Well, Herdon's aspect was the ghost of my immortal love, of my wild endeavors to hold my right, my degradation, my pride, my happiness, and my anguish. But it is frenzy to repeat these thoughts to you. Only it will let you know why, with a reluctance to be always alone, his society is no benefit, rather an aggravation of the constant torment I suffer, and it partly contributes to render me regardless how he and his cousin go on together. I can give them no attention any more. But what do you mean by a change, Mr. Heathcliff? I said, alarmed at his manner, though he was neither in danger of losing his senses nor dying. According to my judgment, he was quite strong and healthy. And as to his reason, from childhood he had a delight in dwelling on dark things and entertaining odd fancies. He might have had a monomania on the subject of his departed idol, but on every other point his wits were as sound as mine. I shall not know that till it comes, he said. I'm only half conscious of it now. You have no feelings of illness, have you? I asked. No, Nelly, I have not, he answered. "'Then you're not afraid of death?' I pursued. "'Afraid?' "'No,' he replied. "'I've neither a fear nor a presentiment nor a hope of death. "'Why should I? "'With my hard constitution and temperate mode of living "'and unperilous occupations, I ought to, "'and probably shall remain above ground "'till there is scarcely a black hair on my head. "'And yet I cannot continue in this condition.' I have to remind myself to breathe, almost to rem remind my heart to beat, and it is like bending back a stiff spring. It is by compulsion that I do the slightest act not prompted by one thought, and by compulsion that I notice anything alive or dead which is not associated with one universal idea. I have a single wish and my whole being and faculties are yearning to attain it. They have yearned towards it so long 
and so unwaveringly that I'm convinced it will be reached, and soon, because it has devoured my existence, I am swallowed in the anticipation of its fulfillment. My confessions have not relieved me, but they may account for some otherwise unaccountable phases of humor which I show. Oh God, it is a long fight. I wish it were over. He began to pace the room, muttering terrible things to himself till I was inclined to believe, as he said Joseph did, that conscience had turned his heart to an earthly hell. I wondered greatly how it would end. Though he seldom before had revealed this state of mind, even by looks, it was his habitual mood I had no doubt. He asserted it himself, but not a soul from his general bearing would have conjectured the fact. You did not when you saw him, Mr. Lockwood. Oh, you did not when you saw him, Mr. Lockwood. And at the period of which I speak, he was just the same as then, only fonder of continued solitude, and perhaps still more laconic in company. End of chapter 33. Well, I will admit to a certain tugging of the heart when I hear Mr. Heathcliff speak. He is, of course, detestable in every way, and yet, like Joseph, he has been guided by his own North Star. That North Star has a name. Her name is Kathy, and she's cute. It is a monomania, is it not? His, his, what, what is it? His, his obsession, both with her, her death, and perhaps his own. It is rather sad to get a glimpse, a horrible glimpse into his own psyche. And yet I cannot help but relate. Having endured my own period of bleakness, not a month ago, I certainly understand how dark shadows can grow inside. And Heathcliff didn't even have SSRIs, you know. He, could, he, could, he couldn't even go to CVS to get himself a couple of pills. So he's been stalking this earth, half of it and half of someplace Else And now the shadows lengthen some more until he is consumed by them, until every thought is an effort, a conscious effort, every drink of water, every bite of food must be accomplished through conscious exertion. I understand that very well also. So we'll leave it there with a, with a note of pity towards the dastardly Heathcliff. And we, I imagine, should have some gratitude at long last for understanding his psyche a little bit better than we did when we started today's episode. He is, of, I mean, of course, he's saying nothing that we didn't already know, but to have his own understanding of it, 
elicits some sympathy, does it not? Or perhaps, as in my case, some empathy. Now, his fixation is perhaps more pronounced than my own. And for those of us who suffer from these feelings, uh, often it is impossible to trace their origin. He at least knows the origin of his own sufferings and has devoted his life to figuring out ways to alleviate that suffering by incurring suffering on others. Revenge being, of course, a dish best served, I don't know, however you want it served. And I think now he is discovering belatedly that revenge, while easy to serve, is perhaps harder to digest. And we'll leave it there. Next episode, very well maybe the last, if this is the last chapter. I'm not sure how many more chapters we have. Let's see. I'm sort of skipping ahead without trying to, without trying to see any words, you know? It might be, next chapter might be the final chapter, and maybe we can get it all done in one episode. I think it is. Chapter 34, I believe, will be the last chapter, and perhaps final episode of Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights, at least as it's read. Maybe we'll do a wrap-up episode, maybe we won't, I don't know. We'll figure it out next time on another scintillating episode of Obscure, but until then, I wish you Arrivederci. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgwin. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.